We are starting a new book. We started it last week. It's the book of 1 John. And John is now the last earthbound disciple of Jesus. He's it. The other disciples have been martyred for their faith. They're gone. So John is all that remains. And he writes this epistle called 1 John, and it's called an occasional letter. What that simply means is this. There's an occasion for him to write it. Something was happening. We looked at that last week. There were groups that were moving into the church not to destroy it, but to modify it. They were gonna make the gospel better. And John is like, uh, 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 you don't improve on the gospel. So he pulls rank and he says, listen, I walked with Jesus. I talked with Jesus. I ate with Jesus. I hung out with him. I questioned him. For three and a half years, I am an eyewitness of him. But even more for his reliability is this. A guy named Tertullian in the second century in his book called Persecution of Heretics, he writes about how John was taken because of his faith to the Colosseum in Rome and he was dunked in a cauldron of boiling oil to kill him. But according to to Tertullian, he did not die. And because he did not die, the Colosseum saw this and they all repented and became believers in Jesus Christ. And in Rome, if you know Rome, you didn't kill heroes, you couldn't. So instead, they exiled John to this island called Patmos. And it was on the island of Patmos that John receives his revelation, the final book of our Bible, right? So John would bear in his body these marks, these scars. And after that exile is over, he's brought back as an old man to the churches. And he would actually be kind of walked around or brought into these churches to speak. So he, he's saying, who do you want to believe? These guys, these new guys, or the guy that walked and talked and was nearly killed for his faith? Who are you going to believe? And he writes this book. This is the occasion. And it's a super helpful book because John has some things he wants to accomplish. Number one, he wants to say, I want you to be assured that you're saved. You ever wondered, am I actually saved? Well, John's the book for you because he's gonna say, here's how you know you're saved. He writes it because he's trying to protect the gospel. This is the message, don't believe lies to protect you and me from lies. But most importantly, here's why he writes. It's 1 John 1, 4. He says, I'm writing all these things so that your joy might be complete, all right? So we're gonna jump in, reread. We read this last week. We're gonna reread it. And we're gonna focus on one thing that I think leads to this joy. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, he's just, I am an eyewitness to this. We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I want to look at one thing. It's this word fellowship. It's mentioned twice here. And fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And a literal translation of koinonia is this. It's all things common. And it's massive. And I think the church has lost what fellowship means because now here's what we do. We just tack on fellowship to anything that we're doing to make it sound holy. So we say to our wives, hey, honey, going out for Friday night fellowship with the boys. Translation, poker and beer. Guacamole in a game. Yeah, it's not fellowship, right? So we've kind of cheapened this thing. We've cheapened it into something else, right? But that's not biblical fellowship. And I will argue this. Biblical fellowship is what every human wants. All things common. To know people and to be known by people. That we share all things in common. We share our humanity, our life, our story. We share our experiences, our love, our joy. We share conversations. We share meaning with each other and purpose. We share goals. It's what you and I deeply long for. We long for this koinonia, but it is super elusive. It's out there, but man, it's hard to find. It's like Bigfoot a little bit. He's out there, but man, he's hard to find. That's koinonia. It's out there, but oh. But here's what you've got to know, that there is a foundation to this kind of knowing and being known. And if you don't get this, you'll never, ever get koinonia. Fellowship, oneness, known and being known, right? So the basis for this koinonia is not affinity. And a lot of our friendships, it's affinity, right? That we're friends because we both like golf. Or we both ride motorcycles. Or we both like Bunko, or we both have kids the same age, or we're friends because we have the same education. We both have PhDs, or we all have GEDs, whatever it is, whatever the case is. <laughs> or it's socioeconomic, right? We're in the same kind of tax bracket, so we have conversations about the same thing, or based on gender, or some kind of identity politics that is out there today. Hey, we have the same identity, so we're buddies, right? So that is mostly, if you look at your friendships, that's kind of how they happen. But it's, it's a giant mistake, I think. Because the mistake in this kind of affinity way is what happens with a lot of people is we choose our friends because of some affinity, because of something that they have, which is wrong. That's not friendship. You're actually using them. So some people, they have to have a certain kind of friend, right? They have to be hip or cool or beautiful or athletic or educated or whatever it is, right? So we're very selective in our friendships. I'm telling you, that is a danger. When you're selective that kind of way, it is a recipe for hurt feelings. That's what's gonna happen. That you are friends with them because of something that they're making you feel like. Like, ah, oh, they make me hipper, they make me cooler, they make me more beautiful. Oh, recipe for hurt feelings. That somehow you're getting your approval from your friendship for them. 
And what happens in those kind of things, when we choose friends for affinity or because of what they make us feel like, is here's what happens. You end up in an echo chamber, right? They're, they're just always gonna agree with you. Why? Because we do the same things, because we're in the same identity group, whatever it is, all right? So then there's no one to be like, wait a second, have you thought about this other thing? Right? No, it's all like, okay. Whatever your politics are, whatever your identity is, it, then you just get this echo chamber. And no one is there to poke you and prod you and expand you and maybe help you see things from a different perspective. So it's very, very dangerous, right? So the basis is not affinity, it's not this at all. It's brilliant what this fellowship is based on. Look again at verses two and three. I'll read them again. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and I underlined it, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that we're making a proclamation. Why? So you can have this koinonia, right? That's the proclamation. And this proclamation, somehow, it then transcends all the barriers to being known. Do you know there are barriers to letting people know you? Maybe it's a dark secret you have in your past that you keep hearing if people knew that. Mm. Maybe it's because you don't feel a certain way around them. You're not beautiful enough. They're too beautiful, so they make you feel unbeautiful. Maybe it's they're charismatic and you're not. They're a jock and you're a nerd. You're good at chess and they're good at basketball, whatever it is, right? They're an addict, they're a felon, I'm not, whatever. So we have all these barriers that we think, oh, we can't be friends. So there's a lot of this kind of, uh uh-oh, it prevents us actually being known because of most of our friendships are based on affinity. But that's not this. And John would understand it. He was a blue collar fisherman. Most likely his education would have ceased about the fourth grade, right? Dad needed him out in the fishing boat. Yeah, you can't go to school anymore, you're fishing. So that would have been John, blue collar fisherman. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along one day and proclaims something to him. And John joins Jesus along with other people that would be just like him, misfits. And somehow because of their misfits, they fit with Jesus. Why? A proclamation. What is that proclamation? So we talked about last week, that Jesus is the God man. And because he is the God man, because of his life, death, and resurrection, verse three just says, we have fellowship with the father and the son. That's the proclamation, right? That now we have fellowship with God, the father, and the son. That is foundational. Listen to me carefully. You and I were designed to run on God's presence. So you probably drove a car here today. What does a car run on? Unless you drove a Tesla, in which I would love to talk to you after service, got some projects, it runs on gasoline, right? That's what a car runs on. You and I, from the beginning, we are designed to run on the very presence of God. So you go to the Garden of Eden, and I believe this, Adam and Eve in the garden, they glowed like light bulbs. It's why they didn't need clothes. So you can look at a light bulb when it's not turned on and you can see the filament, right? You can make it out. But the moment you turn a light bulb on, what happens? You can't see the filament anymore. 
right? So in the garden, Adam and Eve glowed like light bulbs. You read about Moses. When Moses is up on a mountain, he just gets a glimpse. It says of the backside of God, what happens to his face? He glows, why? Because he was recharged by the very presence of God. That's the way it worked, that you and I were supposed to run on the very presence of God, but then the fall happened. And Romans 8.20 says this, now we're subject to futility or vanity or emptiness. After the garden, we got dim. Our batteries ran down. It's maybe like this. It's a cation. You guys know what a cation is? Chemistry 101. So a cation is an atom that's lost an electron. And once it's lost that electron, that atom is looking for another atom that it can steal an electron from, or it looks to get close enough to another atom that it can share this electron with. That's the human condition. That Adam and Eve, every child they had, Cain and Abel, Matt Heverly, us, all of us are cations now. We're missing something. And so then here's what we try to do. We think, if I can just get close enough to this thing that will make me happy. We're all born needy. Do you know that? If you are a parent, you know your child was born needy, right? What are the first two words a child learns? No and mine. And a lot of people never grow out of that. No, mine, right? That's this neediness where we, we lost something, okay? So what happens is, in life, we can sense this kind of futility. So we think, if I can just get close enough to this thing, I'll be happy. If I just had a trophy wife, I would be happy. If I was just this successful, I would be happy. If I had this amount of money in the bank, I'd be happy. If I had this kind of stability, I'd be happy. If I had this kind of intelligence, or this kind of education, or if I could just get in this group, I'd be happy. If I had this kind of reputation, I'd be happy. It's all of us. But you've probably noticed, if you're above 10 years old, that no matter how much you get, you're not happy. It's the day after Christmas, what are you doing? You're on amazon.com figuring out what else you need. Like you just got half a Fred Meyer. Yeah, but I need this. Oh, sure you do, okay? It's in all of us. No matter how rich you are, it's never enough. And this should not surprise us, right? It's been this way as long as there's been history, right? We have this great example in the Bible. His name is Solomon. Okay, Solomon had everything. Money, success, women, you name it. So like one of the most classic things in his book of Ecclesiastes, which is his testimony, Solomon says this, right? He has a thousand women. There's not an eye color, there's not a body shape, there's not a hair kind, there's not a skin tone that Solomon did not have access to, right? You name it, he's got it. In Ecclesiastes 7.28, he says this, of a thousand women, I still haven't found one. What, bro? You're still looking? Yeah, 1,001, she's gonna be it. 1,002, she's gonna be it. Like, you're just, that's insanity. But that's the human appetite. Because we're cations. We're missing something. You go modern, right? You get these people that are rich and famous, and you think they should be the happiest people on earth. Every day should be Disneyland for them. But for some reason, it's not, right? Like my generation, Kurt Cobain, huge, Nirvana. Like I was a big fan. 
I mean, he wrote an album. He purposefully wanted to make it terrible, and it goes platinum. You know, the guy's got Midas touch. Like, what in the world? And at 27, he kills himself. Like, oh, what happened? It's that cation in us. Or Madonna. I had this Vanity Fair interview with Madonna when she is the top of her, when there was no one even close to her when it came to female recording artists. She's just off the chart. And they just listed all of her accolades. And they're like, how does it feel to be so successful? This was her reply. Success makes me happy for one minute. And then I need more. Oh, driven. Wow, that'll drive you into the ground. And here's what happens to a lot of people. You can kind of feel that. You can feel that kind of, ugh, so then at some point in life, I think we have four bad responses to it. Number one is this, you start blaming God. God, I thought life was supposed to be this way. I did all this for you and why, why aren't I happy? And really you're treating God like an idol. Like God, I'll give you these things and then you have to give this to me. Like you can bargain with God. Like if you learn to rub the God genie right, he'll give you your three wishes and everything will be awesome. You'll live happily ever after. God does not play that game. Not can play that game with God. Some people blame God. Other people, they just blame life. Life stinks. They become existentialist. They become, become nihilistic. There's no meaning. It's purposeless. Nothing matters, so they just blame life. Life stinks. Thirdly, blame stuff. So if we think... People and stuff are supposed to make us happy and we're not happy, who do we blame? People and stuff, right? That's what we do. So then we start thinking, if my wife was just, I'd be happy. If my husband was just, I'd be happy. If she just looked that way, if he was more successful, I'd be happy. So we start blaming the stuff around us. And this great study on adultery where they looked at married couples where one of the, the husband or wife committed adultery and they wanted to find, why, why do you do that? What happens? And what they found was this, rarely is it physical. That they had this metric by which they could measure like the attractiveness of people and they found that, that in the majority of the cases, the husband or wife would commit adultery with somebody less attractive than their spouse. And they're like, well, that's not what we thought. And so they started interviewing these people, why? And the husband said this, the reason they committed adultery was this, because she made me feel like a man again, cation. And the women said, because he made me feel valued and loved, cation, right? You can always blame stuff. If I just look like that, if this part of me was smaller or that part was different, you know, we can always blame stuff. You can blame your friends. Like, I have such loser friends. If I had better friends, I'd be happy. Oh, okay. You can always find something. You can blame God. You can blame life. You can blame others. Or lastly, it's this. You can blame yourself. I'm just a moron. I'm inadequate. I'm stupid. I'm whatever. If you're looking for a problem in you, you'll find it. If you can't find it, ask your kids. They will. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? Now, we all have issues, but it is not the issue. It's not the issue. So people go down these roads and they're like, oh, no, here's the issue. 
We're exiles. We lost something in Genesis 3. It's lost, right? We're east of Eden. We're out of touch from our creator. So the thing that we're supposed to run on is gone now. I think if you look at a lot of neurosis of people, it's that right there. So John is saying, here's the good news. Here's the good news. Verse three, the exile's over. You can have fellowship with the father. You can have fellowship with the son. Good news, exile's over. You are accepted. You are beloved. You are wanted. You are family. You're on the inside now. You're brothers. You're the bride. Eden is open once again for you. You have purpose. You're desired. You've got good works that are in front of you right now. That's the proclamation. It's what Bible scholars say is your identity in Christ. That if you get your identity in Christ, what happens is you're not this floating cation anymore. That's what happens to you. It's deep. And if you let that actually trans sink into your heart, it'll transform you. Like this is who I am. So you don't come to every situation needy and empty and trying to get something from someone else. You come into every situation with your cup running over. Well, how does that happen, Matt? I'll give you a couple ways. Number one, here, koinonia grows us big. Koinonia, this deep thing, it grows us big. You have an overflow, you have an abundance. You know this, I have the best already. Everything else is just added to it. I've got what actually matters. And when you're that kind of person, and I believe every believer is supposed to become that kind of person, you're able to expand your friendships to be known and to know because you're not worried about a bunch of things that you used to be worried about. And it's brilliant. You expand. So here's what always amazes me. I get these magazines sent to me because of my position. Now they're emails or whatever they do. And it's from church growth experts. Now church growth experts are experts at getting people in the seat, but they're not actually experts at making healthy churches. So all they care about is how do you get more people to come? Doesn't matter if they're being discipled or transformed, they're just get people in their seats. So they have this term. They say, if you wanna grow a big church, it needs to be homogenous. It's their homogenous principle that everyone needs to be the same. So target one group of people, target poor people, target rich people, target uneducated people, target educated people, right? Target old people, target young people. Make sure that you keep everyone the same because birds of a feather flock together, right? That's their principle. I think it's both ridiculous and I think it's unbiblical. Here's why, read the Bible. Read Acts chapter 16. The church there, Philippi, it's called the, it's called the church of joy because it brought so much joy to the apostle Paul. And you look at that church, you're like, the, the people that found the church are as opposite as you can get. You've got a drill sergeant, retired drill sergeant, and you've got a goth girl with a rat on his, her shoulder. That's the two people that formed that. You're like, that, that can't work. And it becomes, it becomes a church of great joy, right? Because this thing, this thing is ridiculous. Like, I love Edgewater that we're not that way. I love to know like a guy that I've been working with who's trying to get off drugs, and he's sitting in a seat and he can't even sit still. He is fidgeting all over the place, scratching, just, just you can see it, right? And he's sitting right next to a CEO business dude who's just like, and every once in a while he checks for his wallet. Yeah, it's still there, okay, good. 
That is healthy church. That's healthy church, right? We need those kind of relationships. That, that the proclamation that Jesus, God in the flesh, his life, death, resurrection has made a bridge for us back to the Father by faith and that all of us get to him the same way. No affinity, none of those things. We all came to Jesus the same way. Gets rid of every barrier from the PhD to the GED, from the felon to the saint, doesn't matter. Gets us all the same way. So we grow big. That's what we're supposed to do. Like my favorite example is this, it's Acts 13. Let me just read this for you. This is called Antioch. Antioch, I call it the first Christian church. Because in Antioch, it's the first place where believers were called Christians. And it's really the first church that melted every kind of group together. So listen about this church, it's Acts 13, one. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you got this group, diverse group. Let's just go through them. You got Barnabas. Barnabas, the Bible tells us, was a Levite who went south and came back. So modern, let's modernize all these guys. Barnabas is a PK. He leaves the church, he can't stand it. He goes, just lives crazy. Then one time he decides, I'm gonna give Jerusalem one final chance. Shows up in Jerusalem, there's this massive thing happening and he hears the good news and he gets saved and now he is a leader in the church at Antioch. You got Simeon, who was called Niger. Simeon, who was called Black. He's from Africa. So Simeon is a business guy. Ends up in Antioch, he's in Antioch on business and Antioch was so volatile that they literally built walls in Antioch to separate out the different groups of people because they were warring with each other. So they just built walls in the city to separate it out. But something happened every Sunday in Antioch. People crawled over these walls and they all got together from every walk of life and they would meet and they would proclaim Jesus as king. And so Simeon's like, I gotta check this out. He goes to a meeting, here's the good news. And he becomes saved. And now he's a leader in the church. Black guy from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius means red. Cyrene is modern day Libya. You've got a red guy from Libya. I don't know what that means, but he's a misfit. But here's the good news. And he fits. He's an elder in the church. Manaean. So Manaean was the adopted brother of the king, right? He's in there. He's like modern day, he's Justin Bieber. Ferraris, DUIs, gals, right? Running from the paparazzi. One day he hears the good news, gets saved, and he becomes an elder in the church. He's a believer, quite literally. Sorry, that was so bad. And you've got Saul. Saul's an Amish man, right? He wakes up at 4 a.m., no coffee, no TV. He says thee and thou, he gets no cultural jokes. He's just like, oh, what? What are you talking about? Right? Gets nothing, right? Makes all of his own clothing out of tent material. Like he, Manan and Saul, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And yet this is the group of people that God uses to turn the world upside down. This is the group. Like how awesome is that? It's because 
They needed it. They needed the poking and the prodding and the difference and, the, and that diversity brought like, hey, we can do something. We can do something here. How awesome is this? Do you have diversity in your friendships? Or is it an echo chamber? Do you hear the same thing back that you already believe? Or is there anyone that you're around that's like, hey, hold on, hold on, right? Like we need diversity. I'll give you one. Like we're not the most diverse community in Southern Oregon, but here's one, old versus young, right? There's like this division almost between old people and young people. And it didn't exist for a long time, but it really exists in our culture today, right? What happens though, when you get a bunch of old people together, besides napping, what else happens? Stagnation, right? It's, hey, we tried that in 68, it didn't work. Well, that's a wet blanket, right? That's what can happen because of our experience. We can be like, right? And there is this, I call it chronological snobbery, that every age looks back at the previous age and just thinks they're morons. I saw it in my own kids. Like my kids would move from the eighth grade, from middle school group, they'd move to the ninth grade high school group. And like, Three months later, they're like, man, the middle schoolers were up here with us last night. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you're three months from being in middle school. What are you talking about? You're insane. No, dad, there are such nerds and geeks in middle school. What? You're crazy, right? But we all do it. And you move out of high school, you move into college. And you look back at high schoolers like, yeah, it's idiots. Got it easy at home. Mom and dad cooking meals, washing their clothes. Ha, they have no idea how hard college is. Then you graduate from college, you get a job, you're like, college? Are you kidding? You fool? You get spring break, Christmas break, three months off in the summer, wait till you get a real job and have to work all the time, idiot, right? Then you move a little bit out of that into like my age and you look back on the career people like, "Ah, wait till you're grinding this thing out, decade after decade after decade, you have just begun, you fool. Right? And there's some 85 year old guy in there who's like, you're all morons, I hate you. <laughs> right? Silly. You need, and John's gonna address this in chapter two. You need to mix it up. Right? You get a bunch of old people, stagnant, a bunch of young people, they, an app can fish everything in the world. Like, an app isn't feeding people, it's not curing malaria, it's not drilling wells. Right? You need both. I think it's healthy for young couples to be together and, and start kind of go through life. But you know what? They also need a couple old married couples that have been doing it for 20 or 30 years to be like listening to their conversation and at some time be like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. That's divorce, okay? Don't do that. Like, you just need that. The body is supposed to have this kind of stuff built into it. Like I love 1 Corinthians 16, 10 and 11. Corinth was the worst church in the Bible. Just jacked up. Paul takes Timothy as a young man and says, go pastor that church. And in his letter, he writes, hey, 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 be easy on Timothy. Put him at peace, put him at ease and raise him up. Like you guys have a job there at Corinth. Yeah, he's gonna go pastor you and help you, but you've got a job to him as well. Like raise him up, help him become the kind of pastor that he could be, join together. Like that's the way the church is supposed to be, right? It's, it's, this is it. When you get that you've got the best in Jesus Christ. What happens is this, you have just confidence. It's not, I gotta be selective about my friends and you know, it's Manan with Saul. Like what in the world? That would never work and it does. It's, you're not selective anymore. You're broad, you're wide and it's really healthy for all of us. 
And they change the world. These guys change the world. I love that. Are your friends, are you growing your friendships? And men, I warn you about this all the time. Every study says as men age, we make fewer and fewer friends. Women are good, they network, they make more friends. Men, we don't. Like you, ask yourself, are you making more friends now than you were when you were seven years old? Probably not, right? It's not gonna get better. I don't need a study to prove that, right? We all come here and we sit in our seat, in my seat. And then everyone else sits in their seats. And then we talk with each other and then we leave. And part of that is good. But also we need to say, maybe we'll move to a whole different section and say, God, maybe connect me with someone else today. Because we need to always be expanding our friendship groups and saying, God, bring to me, not I gotta be selective and they have to be this kind of person. They gotta be cool. Oh my God, they're not cool. How can I be friends with them? No, I don't need that. I'm big enough. I'm full enough to be friends with anybody. That's what you're supposed to be. And we say, God, bring me those kind of friends. Wow, man, it's hard. I'll tell you, I went to Applegate for a long time. Giant church. Here's what changed everything when I volunteered, right? I volunteered for middle school. Just absolutely hated it. I'm like, ah, this is the most miserable place on earth, right? Ah, these kids are crazy. But I made great friends. Fellowship of suffering. Like, wow, okay. <laughs> and those friendships expanded me. That's what you do. We have community groups, those can help. But I'll tell you, volunteer. And I'm not trying to make a pitch for Edgewater. Volunteer at Gospel Rescue Mission. Volunteer at the Pregnancy Care Center. I don't care where you volunteer, but just say, God, I don't want to be someone that moves through life making fewer and fewer friends. That's not the way I'm supposed to be. And you got a Proverbs, a friend must show himself friendly. Okay, I'm gonna put myself out there. I'm gonna be around people that are different than me. Right? So koinonia grows us big. Number two, Koinonia brings us joy. It's the whole purpose of this, right? We're writing these things so that our plural, if church is about you, you missed it. Our joy may be complete. We're supposed to be these reflectors of God's goodness and God's great as image bearers. And we reflect that back and forth and back and forth so that the whole place gets lighter and lighter and better and better. It's our, that's why it's called the body. It's almost always plural in scripture when it uses the pronoun. Our joy may be complete. How does Koinonia Fellowship make our joy complete? I sketched out 10 of these. I'll do three, because that's all the time I have. Number one, fellowship makes us known. Fellowship makes us known. Our goal, it's why we tell our story. It's why we feel like we wanna share who we are because that's part of what we want. We wanna be known. And here's the thing, I'll give this illustration. Husbands, have you ever taken your wife somewhere? Birthday party. And while you're at the birthday party, you see an old buddy and you start to talk and you tell that old buddy a story that happened in the previous week or two, right? And then on the way home, your wife is mad at you. Arms crossed, you're like, what's up, honey? What's going on, man, that was a great time. And she looks and goes, why didn't you tell me that story before? Anyone. You're liars, all of you, right? I get the emails, my husband, right, whatever. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Different people 
draw different things out of us. It's just the way it is. That when I'm with my wife, she draws one thing out of me. And when I'm with my buddies, certain buddies draw this thing out of me and a different buddy does this thing for me. My father-in-law draws this out of me, right? All of them diverse, all of them needed. That's why the Bible says, expand. Why? You'll be better known. You need them. And, it makes, and, and the more you're known, I'm telling you, your joy gets completed, number one. Number two, fellowship brings guidance. You know the Apostle Paul? Pretty important person in the Bible. If you don't know his story, he goes into exile for 10 years. He's just disappointed. He just takes off. He may have been forgotten there, but he had a friend named Barnabas. And Barnabas ends up in the church at Antioch. And he's like, Antioch needs a good Bible teacher. I remember this Bible teacher named Saul. He calls up Saul, however you did it back then. Grab Saul, bring Saul, and Saul gets his launch into becoming the greatest missionary in history because of relationship, because of koinonia, because of that. I think Edgewater Christian Fellowship is a church because of a conversation I had. 16 years ago, January, it was right after the India tsunami, if you remember that, 2004 Christmas, day after Christmas, 2004. And I'm sitting there talking with Chris, who was kind of a missions guy. He actually became a missionary to China. And I'm sitting there talking with Chris. I'm like, Chris, man, you've been talking about this, you know, thinking about India. And he just looked at me and he said this, you should go to India. I hadn't even thought about that before. Hadn't even crossed my mind. I heard him say that and it was like, light bulb went on. Yes, let's go to India. So I set up this trip. I uh, got, got a bunch of people. We went to, went to India for two weeks. I got super sick coming home in Thailand. Um, they couldn't figure out what it was. I was an experiment like, ooh, yeah, foreigner, let's find out what you got. So just became a pin cushion, all right? So just sick for two weeks, it was strep throat. Like, goodness gracious. Really, they're H1N1, SARS. I'm like, just heal me, right? So anyways, gone from Applegate for a month. I'm pretty sure here's what happened. Peter John, now in heaven, was like, he's been gone for a month. Things are going awesome here. We don't need him anymore. Send a church to Grants Pass, right? That's how things happen. I went to India, had a great relationship with people in India. Five trips to India, why? Because of a conversation with Pastor Chris in January of 2005. That's the way God works. He guides us. How many times have you been guided because of a conversation with another believer? Then thirdly and lastly, Fellowship leads to good works. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, provoke one another to love and good works and do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why are those two things tied together? Because you can't get provoked to love and good works by another believer unless you're with them. How many times have you been around somebody and they're talking about a ministry they're involved in or an idea that they have and you're like, that is awesome. I want to be part of that. How many times have you been with a husband and seen the way that he treated his wife and you say, I'm going to treat my wife that way. How many times have you watched how parents parent their kids and you say, I'm going to parent my kid like that. I can go on and on and on. We learn so much by being with other believers. It leads to good works. That's what it does. And her heart says, yes, yes. It's koinonia. It's koinonia, it's huge. And it begins with a proclamation. The foundation of it is that, that Jesus, God in the flesh, his life, death, and resurrection 
has opened a bridge back to the Father by faith. And because you're no longer a cat eye and no longer desperate and needy, that your cup is running over because you understand your identity, you are able to have fellowship with other people. Expansive. And it brings joy. This is what Jesus wants for us. So as we go to the table today, here's what I want you to do for a second. I want you to open it up Pull out, I'll be generous and call it the bread. And I want you to close your eyes just for a second. I want you to listen to what the Bible says about us, about your identity. In 2 Peter 1.3, it says this. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness. That Jesus's work on your behalf has fully equipped you for life and for godliness. That's the proclamation. That because he's king, savior, you belong, you're accepted, you're wanted, you have it. We're like Dorothy. The shoes have been on the whole time. They're on already. And it's this is how you rid yourself of the lies that the enemy is always wanting to put into our brains that you are inadequate, that you're a bad Christian, that you're not wanted, that if people only knew, those are lies. It takes no faith to believe the lies of the enemy. It takes faith to stand on the promises of Jesus Christ and say, uh-uh, the bridge is open. I've been given everything for life and for godliness. And so as you eat, pray that the word becomes flesh and dwells in you. And this transforms how you view people and view yourself. Let's eat. And the cup, the cup of forgiveness. I think a bunch of us, if we look at our past, it's littered with broken relationships. Some of them caused by our sin, some of them caused by their sin. And what can happen because of broken relationships is this, the enemy comes into our head and he forces us to push play on that bad relationship. And then in the moment, we relive everything. The conversation, they did this and they hurt me this way. And, and then here's what science has proven. When you push play, your brain produces the same cascade of caustic chemicals that are let go into your heart every single time. You're just poisoning yourself. It's called root of bitterness. It defiles you, it destroys you. And they say, you've got 30 seconds and that's it to actually hit pause or you go down the whole road again. Listen, your sins have been forgiven. 
Listen, their sins were forgiven. Stop pushing play. Drink forgiveness, drink freedom. Though your sins were like scarlet, they've made a bloody mess. They're white as snow, that's your identity. Drink that, be free from that. Stop pushing play. Don't you know who you are? You are a thrice royal son or daughter of King Jesus. There was three ways you became royalty. You got adopted into the family, born into the family, or married into the family. Guess what you are in Christ Jesus? You're born again, you're adopted, and you're married in. You are thrice royal sons and daughters of King Jesus. Stop pushing play, be free from it. Have koinonia, let's drink together. Amen. So we have, after a song, people up here that wanna pray for you. Maybe it's about a relationship. Maybe it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ as King, as Savior. Maybe it's a care you have that you need to cast on to Him. They're up here because they want to pray for you. You won't be putting them out, you won't be, they love to pray for people. Give them that opportunity. So you can get prayer or you can be baptized. We take Jesus' words of the Great Commission seriously. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel that God was manifest in the flesh, lived, died, rose again on our behalf. And by faith in Him, you get saved. Preach the gospel. Teaching everything that I taught, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If today's your day to be baptized, we got a baptismal right there. We'd love to join with you in that part of koinonia, getting to know you. So take advantage of these two things. Would you stand for one final song?